In this episode, I wanted to do something a little different and answer some of your questions. I selected a few questions from recent online comments because I believe a lot of people will relate to them. The first question is, does the abuse cycle shorten after recontact, then no contact, then recontact? The second question is, what if we can't separate from the abuser because of financial reasons? What can we do? Number three, I have a kid with a narcissist and the hardest part for me is the emotional blackmail. My daughter adores her father and he uses that to come closer. How can I manage a situation like that? And number four, it feels awful for me to hear our emotional reaction is our responsibility. What if it's both people's responsibility or only of the one that caused it in you? I get the point of not showing to an emotional manipulator that we have emotions so we don't get even more hurt if used only as a way to get away from them. But I don't agree that how we are affected is our responsibility. It's like expecting our nose to not bleed if someone punches us in the face. So these are the questions that I'm going to address in today's episode. Buckle up and get ready for some advice straight no chaser. This is Meredith Miller and you're listening to the Inner Integration Podcast where you can learn the mindsets and tools to self-heal after narcissistic abuse. Question one, does the abuse cycle shorten after no contact and then recontact? So it sounded to me like the person was saying that there was a period of no contact, either after the abuser discarded the querent or the querent went no contact. Then at some point, the querent got back in contact with the narcissist and she wanted to know if the abuse cycle is shortened in this case. Yes, the abuse cycle is expedited every time you separate and get back in contact with the abuser. So what maybe took a year or two the first time will now be rushed into maybe one or two months, for example. The love bombing lasted a long time the first time around when the abuser was grooming you for the long haul. The next time around, after you've shown the abuser that you can live without them, their abuse cycle will be sped up. They won't invest as much in the love bombing and the devaluation will come a lot sooner. You'll even notice this with their hoovering messages. So if you didn't bite at the love bombing forms of hoovering, they'll quickly switch to devaluation and often in the same breath or the very next text message. That's merely a preview of what will happen if you answer their hoovering and get back in the abuse cycle. That's also where you can realize plain as day that the love bombing is also part of the abuse. Many people mistakenly believe that the abuser is sometimes, quote, good and, quote, nice. And those are the memories that keep a victim holding on to toxic hope that the abuser will change and that one day that person will just decide to be the good person that they saw glimpses of in those moments. The love bombing or idealization is simply a form of seduction. It's meant to pull you in, to make you comfortable, to make you feel wanted. Seduction isn't always sexual. In the family, narcissists can seduce you with money, gifts, help, false support, false concern for you. Narcissistic frenemies will seduce you with status, gifts, 
taking you places, paying for things, connecting you with people who can help you, or giving you a false sense of support. The love bombing is inherently part of the abuse cycle. You really need to understand this if you want to build immunity to narc abuse by recognizing it early next time before the signs get much more blatant. Now, if you were out of contact with the abuser and then got back in contact, expect to notice that the love bombing has much less investment. Why would that happen? Probably because the abuser knows that you can live without them now, so they will be aware that you could leave again at any time. Probably also because your return to contact shows the abuser that your self-worth is really low, so they know they can invest much less in you and you'll still hang around. The abuser probably also knows that you don't have any other options at this point if you're willing to revisit the abusive relationship, and so they know that you would prefer that to being alone. At some point, I'll do a video on what happens if you break no contact and go back to the abuser. The short preview is, it's always worse, every time. I believe that even if the abuser isn't self-aware that they are abusive, at some level, they must know that when people are willing to be treated like crap and then come back, that gives them the right to treat you even worse. I don't believe that's okay. I just think that's their rationale behind it. They will certainly punish you for having gone no contact because that creates a narcissistic injury for them. They want to be able to discard you. They never want you to do that first. The truly sociopathic ones who believe that life is a battle of the fittest, they'll justify the worsening treatment as the victim is weak and deserves to be treated that way. It's sick. It's disgusting. I know. But it's real. Ask anyone who's ever gone back. It's always worse the next time. If you haven't got the free PDF I did on the narcissistic abuse cycle, check the link in the show notes so you can grab a hold of that. Question two, what if we can't separate from the abuser because of financial reasons? What can we do? This question I want to address in two layers. The first layer is to begin shifting your perspective out of the limiting beliefs and into more open possibilities. This way, your subconscious will start helping you to look for solutions instead of looking for a reinforcement of what you already believe is your limited reality. The second layer is taking the actions that will help you create your financial independence so you don't need to depend on any abusers, and so in the future, you'll always have a way to leave if things go south. So first, stop telling yourself, I can't messages, like, I can't leave, I can't move out on my own, I can't get away from my parents. Start telling yourself instead that you're in the process of figuring it out. This means using the present progressive tense. I am ing. So for example, I am working on a plan of action to create my financial independence. I am taking action every day that leads me closer to my goal of financial independence. Your subconscious is much more likely to get on board with affirmations if it understands that there's a process going on, if it can see that you are in fact taking action. 
So the other part then is you need to be taking action. That means consistent small steps every day in order to build your financial independence. This means you're looking for a job if you're currently unemployed. You're working on finding another job that pays better if you're making money but need to be making more in order to afford rent and bills on your own. This also means that you have your own bank account that has only your name on it. It's not a joint account with anyone else. And in that bank account is where you're saving money every week, every month, that will help to cushion your landing on your feet after you leave the abuser or the abusive family. If you're disabled and on a fixed income of financial assistance from the government, be sure that you're maximizing your benefits. Maybe there's more assistance that you're not aware of yet. Sometimes going to a legal assistance agency can be a great help. They're supported by government grants and they handle legal cases for people who are disabled and or poor and unable to hire an attorney to defend their rights. 20 years ago, I worked at a legal agency like that in Philadelphia as a bilingual paralegal, and there were some really awesome humans working there. Another way you can maximize your benefits is checking into government-assisted housing. So if you're disabled and you're on some kind of government disability program, many cities have buildings that are subsidized by the government and offer reduced housing costs to people who are disabled and on Social Security or other state-sponsored benefits. You could end up paying a greatly reduced rent that way, and that could help you to get started on your financial independence. One of the worst positions to be in is needing help from an abuser. That gives them unlimited power over you and makes you a sitting duck for their abuse. You'll feel like you have to just take it because you have no option and you're indebted by accepting their help. Accepting financial help is one of those situations. Of course, it's a catch-22 since you often find yourself needing financial help because you've got severe PTSD, anxiety, depression, and other emotional or physical health issues making it very difficult to get a job and hold on to a job. You're likely to end up working for or with other abusers, and that breaks you down even more and often leads you to choosing unemployment over losing your health and sanity. Then, you find yourself otherwise homeless and dependent on an abusive parent, partner, or friend who takes advantage of you needing their help. Then, you develop a false sense of security due to their help when they're playing nice, and as soon as they start devaluing again, you're worried about how you're going to leave when you're totally dependent on them. If at all possible, never ask for or accept help from abusive people or people you suspect could become abusive. If you're already in deep, don't beat yourself up over the past. Start focusing on the present and how you're going to create the future results that you desire, the very first one being you building your financial independence. This won't happen overnight, so you need to be patient in the process as you're taking consistent actions toward your independence. While you're still with the abuser, it's very important not to tell them anything at all about your plans to leave, to get a better job, to get a job, to save money, to find a new apartment, etc. Nothing. The only things you can tell them are in the past tense because they're done and they can't interfere now. Never, ever share your hopes and dreams for the future with abusers because they will shit all over them in their attempts to sabotage you. 
If you have a very nosy abuser, the interrogator type, you'll probably need to create a decoy to give them something to focus on while you're quietly focused somewhere else. You know how they are. Anytime they think that you have something good going on that makes you happy, they'll try to ruin that for you. So make something up. Act excited about it. Then let them shit all over that imaginary thing that you don't actually care about and really isn't even real. They'll be so obsessed and focused on that thing, they usually won't even notice that you're working on something else until it's too late and you're gone. Now that's sneaky, it's tricky, and it's the only way to beat them at that game so you can get free. Question three. I have a kid with a narcissist, and the hardest part for me is the emotional blackmail. My daughter adores her father, and he uses that to come closer. How can I manage a situation like that? Oof. That's a tough one. Co-parenting with an abuser has to be the toughest situation because you truly have no way out until, at the very least, the child or the children all turn 18. Even still, there will be issues ongoing afterward like university costs, housing costs, health insurance, graduations, marriages, grandkids, etc. that will often require some contact with the abuser. If you're co-parenting with the narcissist, the very first thing you need to master is the technique of responding versus reacting. Check out the previous podcast episode on that topic. I also have YouTube videos that will teach you about that method. This is the only way to maintain your boundaries and your sanity through very difficult situations. Responding versus reacting will already give you an advantage over the abuser because they're not expecting you to get boundaries like that. They're not expecting you to not take the bait. They're not expecting you to master self-control over your emotions and not give them the reaction that they were used to getting from you. This will make the abuser try harder to get your reaction. And eventually, when they get nothing, they will become unhinged. That, of course, makes them look bad in front of others, especially the kids. I can imagine it must be exasperating to see your innocent little kids enamored by the narcissist, having no idea who your ex really is. I mean, I can imagine how that would make you feel like you're losing your damn mind. The worst part, I'm sure, is when they use the kids as pawns against you. Understand, this is what they do, predictably. When they can't get to you because you have boundaries now, they will use your kids to try to hurt you. You'll need to apply the responding versus reacting technique to not show an emotional reaction to your ex or to your child who might then relay that message to your ex. You really want to avoid putting your children in the middle of it, even though they will inevitably find themselves in that position because the narcissist parent will always try to turn the kids against you. They will try to poison their minds. They will lie, smear you, play the victim, use guilt-tripping tactics all to emotionally blackmail your kids and you if you let them. They will also buy your kids love with toys, food, vacations, privileges, and other gifts, and that will confuse most kids. I've heard of cases where the ex had everything the kid wanted, like video games, pizza, pools, late nights, and this was their way of bribing the kids to prefer being there than with their genuinely loving parent. Unfortunately, there's really nothing you can do to control that, 
And I don't recommend getting into a competition with your ex by doing the same thing. When your child then learns how to manipulate you by telling you all the things that their other parent has or lets them do on their watch, you're going to have to use the respond versus react with your kids too. You know, maybe they get home from the weekend and they're telling you about all these things that they ate and everything that they did. You can say something like, I'm glad you had a good time with dad or mom or that sounds fun. Or maybe something comes up where they have to go to bed by 8 o'clock or they have to do something that they know is a normal rule in your house, but they got away with at the other parent's house. And so they're complaining and crying and throwing a tantrum about that. You can say something like, I'm sorry you're upset, but these are the rules at home. I'm sorry you don't want to go to bed yet, but it's your bedtime. I'm sorry you want to keep playing, but it's bedtime. You need to go brush your teeth and get in bed. I'm not a parent, as you know, so I'm not speaking from experience. If I were a parent in that situation, I would be careful not to control the child's relationship with the other parent because that could get you in a lot of trouble with the law. If your ex is really covert and cunning, they could try to mount a case of parental alienation against you, and that's not good. We all know that the kids' contact with the abusive parent is deeply damaging to them and will inevitably set them up for adult abusive relationships that feel familiar, which they'll interpret as love. Or worse yet, the kids will turn into the abusive parent. It's horrible. But according to the law in most places, you'll have to let your kids have contact with the abusive parent according to your custody arrangement. The only thing you'll be able to do is damage control. When your kids return from a day or weekend with the narcissist, plan for some flexible time for the kids to decompress. So imagine you were coming back from that situation. Don't immediately force them into obligatory chores and homework or commitments that they don't want to do. Maybe your kids like dancing or roller skating, or nature walks, swimming, sports, or alone time for art or journaling. You know your kids' personalities, so support them in the ways that you know they'll get the most benefit from. You can also be sure to make yourself available to talk openly, without judgment, anytime they want to go to you to voice their anger, concerns, or worries. Listen more than you talk, and when in doubt, You can ask curious, open-ended questions to get them to articulate more about what's bothering them. You can use their situations to teach them about boundaries. Just remember, if you're not modeling that behavior for them, they won't listen to what you're saying and instead, they'll copy what you're doing. If they see you stressed out from your ex and misdirecting your anger by yelling at them, how do you think they'll learn to deal with their anger? If they see that you're dealing with the stress by drowning your feelings in alcohol at night, guess what they'll start doing as soon as they can get someone to buy booze for them? I think a good rule of thumb would be, ask yourself, is that going to be a positive example or a destructive one for my kids? If your kid instead sees you get on the treadmill or you go for a bike ride or you journal when you're stressed, then you're modeling a healthier coping mechanism for them. Anytime your kid tells you something or you see evidence of something unacceptable, document that and take legal action if possible. 
you're always going to have to have funds set aside for legal matters so you can take legal action as soon as possible when your ex is breaking the law or your custody agreement. The sooner you nip that in the bud, the better. Be sure to be 100% in integrity with your values and the law at all times so the narcissist has nothing to use against you. Of course, you can run into a lot of the same issues with your narc-in-laws, who are just like your ex. Grandparents don't have rights in most jurisdictions. However, if your ex is taking the kids to see his parents or her parents when they're with your ex, you can't control that. And again, the only thing you can do is damage control. Narc grandparents can do just as much damage as narc parents. They will spoil your kids. They'll purposely ignore your boundaries around what the kids are allowed to eat and drink, what time is bedtime, the amount of TV or electronics they're allowed daily, any other way they can find to buy their grandkids love and hurt you in the process. Now, you don't have to have contact with the narc-in-laws. Just unfortunately, with their self-absorbed, manipulative, adult baby offspring. If you notice your kid is suffering from the relationship with your ex, get your kid into therapy as soon as possible. If you see your child is starting to develop tendencies of a personality disorder, the sooner you get professional intervention, the better chance your kid has of turning around and not becoming another menace to society. Most importantly, remember that the more healthy and healed you are, the more you'll be able to help your kids. You need to be the lighthouse for them. If you're not well, you're not going to be shining your light. And if you aren't shining your light, how are your kids ever going to find their way to the shore when they are caught in the storm at sea? Also, remember that the narc parent is only going to be enamored with the kids as long as the kids are conforming to their reality and feeding them narcissistic supply by serving as an extension of them that they can use for bragging rights and to meet their emotional needs. Now, as kids become teenagers and start to individuate more, having their own desires and seeking closeness more with friends than parents the narcissistic parent is going to get more annoyed with the kids and they will often want less to do with them. When a narc parent abandons the kids and all parenting responsibilities to the other parent, that's often a blessing in disguise, as many single parents have told me. Keep in mind, too, that each state has their own laws about how old a child has to be when they can choose which parent they want to live with. Hopefully, at that point, your kids will pick you, But if they're still brainwashed and they pick your ex, don't take it personally. I'm sure that would be very difficult, but again, it's out of your control. The only things that you can do are damage control and working on your own self-healing so you can be the lighthouse in case one day your kids wake up and go running back to you. Question four. It feels awful to me to hear our emotional reaction is our responsibility. What if it's both people's responsibility or only of the one that caused it in you? I get the point of not showing to an emotional manipulator that we have emotions so that we don't get hurt even more if used only as a way to then get away from them. But I don't agree that how we are affected is our responsibility. It's like expecting our nose not to bleed if someone punches us in the face. 
This is a common perception when we are in stage one, the victim stage of the recovery process. There's no shame in being a victim. We all have to go through that stage of recovery. This is when you're feeling powerless because you so badly want the abuser to admit that what they did was wrong and hurtful and to apologize for doing that. You want them to take responsibility for your feelings because after all, they're the one that did something that caused you to feel that way. However, this is a state of disempowerment. Do you see how you've placed all your power in their hands when you're waiting for them to realize that they're hurtful and need to change? Meanwhile, they're accepting no self-responsibility for their actions. First of all, understand that the abuse was never your fault nor your responsibility. That was entirely on the abuser. However, it's a self-responsibility which they will never accept because their whole M.O. is to avoid responsibility for their actions. They'll blame and shame you for being too sensitive or for taking it personally. All of that is wrong. However, you also need to understand what you have control over and what you don't because that is how you find your power again. You don't have control over the abuser's actions. You don't have control over them accepting self-responsibility for their actions. You don't have control over them realizing that what they're doing is wrong and hurtful. You don't have control over them changing their behavior in order to behave in decent ways. You don't have control over them not feeling bad that you are hurt from their actions. You do have control over your actions. You have control over your emotions. If you don't, this is something you need to master so you don't feed them narcissistic supply. In general, this is something helpful and healthy to learn in life because when you can control your emotions, that's a sign of emotional maturity. This does not mean that it's wrong for you to be upset or hurt at what they did. Of course, you're allowed to feel that way. That's normal and natural. I recommend you don't show that emotion to the abuser lest you give them power over you. Play your best poker face and then go work out the emotion in private. Another thing you do have control over is your boundaries and who you let in your life. If you keep having contact with someone who hurts you, knowing that it hurts you, and you keep trying to work things out, but the person shows you up to three times that they are continuing the unacceptable behavior, then it's your responsibility to set new boundaries to stop yourself from being exposed to the abuse and the people that hurt you. Don't just stay in it, playing the martyr, saying how horrible it is that they keep treating you like that while you continue to stay in contact with them, expecting them to take responsibility for your feelings. They're showing you who they are. Believe that their actions are revealing who they are and then protect yourself and your feelings. Otherwise, you're participating in your own demise, in your own heartbreak, and that is partially your responsibility. Now, of course, some actions are so hurtful that a person doesn't deserve those three strikes. You have the control and responsibility over deciding when it's won and done. So to the Quarant's analogy of expecting your nose not to bleed if you get punched, of course your nose will bleed. You can't control that. 
what you do have control over is deciding to stop hanging out with people who punch you in the face. You have control over realizing that you don't want to be treated that way. You don't want to feel that way. You don't deserve to feel that way. And that, of course, is going to be inevitable when you hang out with people who punch you in the face. If you don't want to keep feeling that way, then you need to stop hanging out with people who do those things to you. That is your responsibility to decide what's okay for you and what's not based on how you feel and how you want to feel and then setting appropriate boundaries. That is empowerment. Continuing to accept abuse, then whining about how it makes you feel and how it's their fault that you feel that way is disempowerment. That's not the path of recovery. That perspective will keep you stuck with the abuser and or falling into new abusers because you won't get into the empowerment of stage two. If you don't like how you feel when you hang out with someone, then do something about it. Set a boundary. Stop hanging out with that person. Remember, you don't have control over their behavior, so stop trying to control them so you can feel okay when you're with them. That's not going to happen. That will lead you down the path of insanity. The only way to feel okay when someone is hurting you is to cut them out of your life because they are not going to stop hurting you. If you don't like how you feel, it's your responsibility to do something about it. When you realize that accepting 100% self-responsibility is the key to your empowerment, that is when your perspective shifts. And instead of staying stuck in how unfair it is that you feel that way and how it's their fault, you stop giving your power away. You stop letting them make you feel that way by removing the privilege of your presence from their life. So maybe you need to remind yourself that your presence in anyone's life is a privilege and that privilege is earned and can be taken away. Not even family gets a pass to abuse that privilege. It's your responsibility to remove yourself from environments where you don't feel good. You are not the karma police. You're not here to try to get others to comply with basic human decency. That's between that person and God and their own conscience post-mortem. You can't control any of that. Shifting out of the victim stage and into the survivor stage means that you are no longer trying to control what's out of your control, which only leads to more feelings of helplessness and powerlessness. And instead, you're focusing your energy on controlling what you actually do have control over. That brings you into states of empowerment and self-esteem. If you want to know more about the three stages of recovery after narcissistic abuse and how to help yourself up-level from one stage to the next, check out my book, The Journey, A Roadmap for Self-Healing After Narcissistic Abuse. You'll find it on Amazon.com and you'll find the direct link in the show notes. If you're looking for a therapist in your area to help you recover after narcissistic abuse, you might want to check out BetterHelp. It's a portal of licensed therapists who provide affordable online therapy at your convenience. You'll see that link in the show notes. That link will take you to their intake questionnaire. Then be sure to select trauma and abuse as one of the areas that you want to work on so they can match you with someone who has experience 
in that field. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more Q&A podcast episodes like this, let me know. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Inner Integration Podcast. I hope you learned something today that helps you to see from a new perspective and to start using new tools so you can take action and transform your life after narcissistic abuse. Remember, you are enough. You matter. And you got this. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to get automatic updates on new podcast episodes as they're released. Visit us online at innerintegration.com where you get instant access to a free quick start guide to recovery after narcissistic abuse upon entering your name and email. You'll also find there digital courses that have already helped thousands of people move through the self-healing process. Get loads more free inner integration content to help you heal after narcissistic abuse on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Big hug to you.